Lemonade. Hi everyone, thanks for coming back to Lemonade. This episode, we have a great chat with our friends Tez and Sude, who wanted to discuss their insights after years of experience into the issues of race and anti-blackness in the aid sector, and how we can be allies and work with and for our friends, colleagues and counterparts. The Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 has spread across the world and into the aid sector. Information, conversations and interviews are popping up everywhere we look. How can we work to make sure that this issue is a priority and not just a moment in time? Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Lemonade. I'm here with Sade and Tez, friends, just for the record. And we have been talking a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement and how that relates to the humanitarian industry. And there's been a lot of discussion over the last few months about um, our particular industry and our sector and what the Black Lives Matter movement has meant for you know how we do operations and what happens. And so we wanted to talk about the impact of the movement within the sector and Tazins today wanted to come on and discuss a bit about how to introduce the conversations about race within your workplace and where there are difficulties in doing it and how to, to move around this environment. And so I'm going to ask uh, Taz and Sede to introduce themselves so you know a bit more about who they are and what they do. Hey Ian, this is Taz. Um, I've been working in the humanitarian field for about seven, eight years now. And I'm yeah really excited to be talking about this topic. It's a very, I think, personal and, sens- and sensitive issue for quite a lot of people of color uh, in, the, in the industry. And I think it's also been a bit of a challenging conversation, I would say, for a lot of us to have at this time, especially with COVID and everything. So yeah, quite excited to be on. Hi, Taz. Welcome. Hi Ian, hi Taz, I'm, uh, hi everyone, I'm today. I've been working in the aid sector for over 12 years, mix of uh, field and, um, and headquarters uh, position, and very excited to be here and to, to talk about this topic. I think it's relatively new and it's important that we start having those conversations. And I think it's important to also hear the perspective of uh, two black women and uh, how we navigate this and so just jumping straight into it, I mean, you said this is a new issue, but in reality, you know, is it? Is it? <laughs> it's not a new issue, but it's definitely a new big topic. I think we have, uh, we had gender, uh, we've talked a lot recently about the impact of uh, COVID-19 and what it's meant uh, for our sector, for its staff, for mental health, for our programs and I do think since maybe end May, early June and the aftermath of what happened to George Floyd, there's been a lot of discussion, um, not just within the United States, but within the ed sector on um, what does uh, anti-racism mean? What does it look like? What does anti-black racism mean? Um, How do we look at our programs? What does it mean for humanitarian staff? Uh, So in that sense, it is kind of a new momentum to really confront those issues. And so, you know, over the last few months, there's definitely been a huge amount of discussion that's actually happening, but potentially within our sector, potentially there's a gap in what's being discussed. Potentially there are a lot of issues in being able to discuss workplace racism within the sector. 
what are what are people saying and what are people discussing? What do you think today? I mean, I think it varies. I mean, the way it happened was, um, I th I think for many, probably a surprise. And there is that question of, would we have had such a strong debate if it weren't for COVID-19 and the way it changed the way we were working? Um, and at least from where I sit, from what I've seen, um, it started mostly with questions on, are we going to speak publicly? Is There was a new humanitarian webinar on, is Black Lives Matter a humanitarian issue? Um, and then, you know, forcing different levels of questions. I think first, and the first one is usually around our own organizations and our staffing and um, what are the questions, what do the questions mean within our own structure? What does it mean in terms of uh, diversity, in terms of representation, in terms of power dynamics, in terms of voices who are speaking? Uh, I remember a friend who always said, who is at the who has a seat at the table and who is there and really forcing us to look at this. Um, but it is also very varied. There's the question now of decolonization of aid that has starting and linking this as well to the localization agenda. So what does it mean in terms of our programming, in terms of partnership, in terms of um, the way we communicate, the way we engage, the way we talk about communities who benefit from programs, the way we frame uh, the overall narrative around humanitarian aid. So it's quite a wide range. And I think this is what we're probably just at the beginning of a conversation. Uh, do you think today that these are all, um, you know, that the, the race issue is an underlying issue that's, that's, you know, affected all of these things that we just have never been paying attention to, that's never, you know, come up to the right levels? Definitely a personal opinion, but I do think um, labeling clearly the topic as looking at anti-racism is new and the focus on it is something that's very challenging across the board. Mm -hmm. I think it brings uh, to light a lot of issues. There's a lot of things that have been perhaps unspoken, mm -hmm. you know, touch a bit on diversity and things like this. But really, what does it mean to really look at uh, anti-racism within the ed sector? What does it mean when we still have a very strong structure where it's a very Western donor heavy leverage? What does it mean when we know that in a lot of the organization, the top management is a lot more white men than anything else? Um, what does it mean in terms of uh, representation? What does it mean in the way we still have communication ads that still portray malnourished children that are African with flies, very skinny? Uh, what does it mean? How are we framing all this? And um, I think in that sense, it's uh, yeah, it's it's just a lot of questions. I'm not sure we're at the phase of answers yet, but it's a uh, it's a lot of questions. It's issues that have probably been there, as you say, that have been underlying. But I think now there is um, a willingness and perhaps a collective strength to put these on the table and to actually really address the issues. Mm -hmm. And so you make, I mean, you paint up what must be a complex picture. And so I wonder if you know, looking at Tez, are those questions, um, are they difficult things to raise within the workplace? Are people kind of being receptive? Are you able to, to communicate in a way that people, you know, listen or appreciate? Is that something that's happening now? Oh, I definitely think it's one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now in our, in our industry. Because, I mean, bottom line, no one wants to be labeled a racist ever. And you know, the conversations around discrimination generally, not only about racism, 
always have this underlying tone in which people tend to be defensive. Um, we all have conscious and unconscious biases. That's always been part of the of our workplace, and especially when we're talking about humanitarian aid, the the whole underlying system in which we function is based on cultural differences and being able to adapt our programming to respond in a culturally appropriate way. But of course, there's always the flip side of that, whereby we're looking at trying to group different issues or different um, facets of a population to be able to address them. So when you talk about race, of course, it's a sensitive topic. And I think that in the several times I've had this discussion um, with colleagues or um, peers, I think that's been the biggest challenge for a lot of them is to be able to absorb the information and not immediately try and place blame on either themselves or others and therefore be defensive. But I, but I think that in the conversations I've had at least, I, I agree that we have to pose the questions and that's just the start. But honestly, I think a lot has to come from even being able to get on the same playing field. I feel like a lot of us are having a discussion where even the terminology is quite foreign to a lot of people. Um, so until we even have a, a way to normalize the use of the words anti-black, you know, anti, you know, discrimination, racism, until we, we're able to have those conversations day to day in a you know, constructive manner, you know, I'm wary of what steps our industry can take to move forward on some of these issues. Do you think this conversation is happening at the right place? Is it inclusive of everyone that we work with and for, or is it something that's just happening uh, in, in headquarters? I mean, this is Taz. I mean, I think it's, um, it's a bit mixed. I definitely think that, you know, this, you know, as today mentioned, like this started, started. This is a conversation that's been going on for years and years, but I think with COVID, and uh, what happened with George Floyd and the situation in, in America, you kind of had the perfect ingredients for a storm. And this sort of basically expanded across the world. And I think it allowed people to start questioning themselves. I mean, even myself as a black woman, I mean, I've worked in the industry for some time. And of course, there are things that happen um, that you can attribute to saying, oh, because I'm a woman or because I'm junior or because I'm black. And eventually you never actually put words to the actual situation or the concept and now that we've been able to talk to talk about it a little bit more openly in the us i feel like this is a conversation that's also happening in the field but that said i'm not so sure i would agree that we have the same autonomy everywhere to be able to discuss these things with management with the right people in uh in, the, in every context and i think it's very uncomfortable it's a conversation that makes a lot of people uncomfortable and that means that we're probably having the conversation we're supposed to have at the time we're supposed to have it. Um, and it's sometimes very basic. I think it's very destabilizing sometimes just when I say, well, as a black woman, mm -hmm. and this already makes some people cringe, but I am a black woman. There's nothing that's going to change about this. And I think it's important to sometimes frame perceptions that we have and experiences that we have in that lens. And it's not about labeling someone else a racist. It's just recognizing that we all have um, different experiences that are also framed by our identity and by, by who we are. And, you know, the issue we've had in the sector is we, we are humanitarians. You know, we're, we're good people, we commit to giving, and we're usually very liberal. And there is this narrative that we feed ourselves that, you know, we're 
just ahead of all of those issues. Mm-hmm. And we need to unpack all this because the same power dynamics we have in societies, we have within the sector. We have issues of abuse of power. We have issues of harassment. We have issues of racism and gender discrimination and sexual identity discrimination. And it's important that we also have a critical look at ourselves. It's not just about judging or you know casting blame, but it is about coming together and seeing how we can do better. And I think the BLM conversation is just forcing us to have that critical eye, which is not easy. And it has to be kind of a collective journey. Just would like to say that it's, um, it's not easy. I think a lot of the, um, the weight of it does fall on people of color. And so just on that point that you say there, sorry to interrupt, you've said previously that um, there is an expectation that you speak out and say things, but when you do, you know, there's a reality that actually what you're saying is not as welcome as you, as you anticipated or as you, you know, as you believed. Is that something that has been a consistent issue across your time working in this industry? Or is that something that's particularly coming up now as people are becoming much more defensive about being questioned about what their ideals are and, and you know, how, how organizations have been operating for the last number of decades? I would say it's always been there but I've also probably been less vocal before. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, as you get older, as you have more experience, there's just things you say more. You speak more about, you know, uh, tasks that are only be given to you because you're a woman or because you're a young woman or because you're a young black woman. And uh... <laughs> I'm laughing because... because <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I walked into this, but actually uh, there, there was once an incident with Sade and I when we were working in South Sudan and we were in a meeting and, uh, you know, someone had to take notes and I, you know, as the, <laughs> as the white male that I am, looked at today uh, and asked her if she would take notes uh, and she just looked at me uh, and then, you know, today took the notes. But then after that um, incident, she pulled me aside and she educated me on my <laughs> lack of sensitivity <laughs> But I have to say, it was very much, uh, it was uh, quite a life-changing moment in terms of how I interact with the people that I work with and how I interact with people in the office and, you know, things like, simple things like taking notes, you know, who who is that delegated to? How do you consider, you know, where in a team that should that should be done? You know, me looking at Sade to do it when she... Uh, clearly was um, higher graded than me, better informed and just all around much better than I am, um, was entirely inappropriate. So yeah, when you say that maybe you weren't as vocal, um, I think... (laughs) I was at the beginning. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for that. Okay, so now I'm way more vocal. (laughs) So I guess I'm annoying. Uh, That's a fact. No, you do. You get more confident, more comfortable. You also have more experience, so you also see different things. I My last assignment was also in Somalia, where the gender balance is appalling. <laughs> we could count the number of women. So there are also just things you feel more more strongly, and you also learn from this. And um, in that sense, these are, I think, issues that have been on the table, but now people do feel more comfortable mm-hmm. putting them forward. And there is also the strength you gain from having group discussions. Mm-hmm. It's happening, you read about it, it's not just in the private sector or in societies or in American societies. It's also in the aid sector. And everyone's thinking, everyone's discussing, everyone's sharing articles. And then 
you see interviews and you see people speak and you're like, oh, wait, this actually echoes a lot of the things I'm going through. Yeah. Um, but it is uncomfortable because we have hierarchical structures. Mm -hmm. So you start putting things on the table and then there are different reactions. Mm -hmm. And it's, we have to recognize that it's, it's not easy. And I think everyone's like, oh, but you have to continue. You can't give up. I'm like, well, very easy to say <laughs> when you're not always putting yourself, you know, out there. It's, yep. I think we completely tend to negate how we are putting our vulnerabilities on the table. And that is not easy and it is draining. And uh, there is a lot of discussion in the US about um, black fatigue. I uh, had a colleague who was talking about being racially tired and it's... And so can I interrupt to yeah. just ask, you know, what, what is that? It's, I mean, just again, my opinion, but it's about always having to explain, always being asked to, to educate, to understand, to not judge, to explain what this means, being asked a question, you provide feedback, but then, well, it's not really the feedback we expect. So actually, could you reframe a bit your answer? <laughs> because this is a bit offensive. So it's, you just can never win. And mm -hmm. I think that's one aspect. I do think we've, we've all lived, I think. I don't think there's a black person who'll say they've never experienced racism. And I think a lot of it, depending on who you are, it's something you've internalized or not, but it's things you've lived. And to get the conversation going, the most powerful tool is to share your experience. Yeah. But this is also very personal. And not everyone is as comfortable, you know, to put very intimate and moments of fragility on display and on the table. And when you do it in the workplace where, you know, you're also trying to be a good professional, a strong professional to yeah. also show other other qualities, it's, it's not easy. And then it's... Um, it's a challenge as well because you know you have supervisors and you're in team settings and you have those discussions and it's it's just it's just hard i think it's necessary but it does come at a cost and i do wonder a lot about staff retention i wonder if this is a moment where uh people of color will feel more empowered or just more inclined to leave yeah and so Taz, I mean, you want to jump in? Yeah, no, I just wanted to, I mean, it's amazing what, how today framed it. Um, I just thought that one thing to add would just be that, you know, the, the issue I sometimes have with like our industry is that the only way in which you address these issues is by having some kind of formal mechanism. And I think that some of the discussions we're having are, of course, personal, but they seep into the workplace. And how do you find a balance between being able to address these issues, not only by having to... Um, report on a particular case in a way that you feel that you're going to have some kind of retaliation against you? How can you find that balance in which it's that actually a conversation where both sides are learning? I think you had a very good example with the, um, with the note-taking. I mean, Sade approached you and gave an explanation. It was a conversation, but it helped that you had a kind of pre previous relationship where you could talk about that. But right now we're talking about instances in the workplace where the immediate reaction is, oh, you can just talk to your supervisor or talk to someone above you. Mm -hmm. And not everyone can relate no. to their supervisor or the person, or the director to have this conversation. But it is, in my opinion, at least, 
also the responsibility of the leaders in these organizations or in our industry to be able to humble themselves and also have this conversation and not have always this backlash, which is, I think this was something that affected me and I feel like it was a, an act of discrimination and have, but no, that's not, that's not what I meant. Oh no, that's not the case or you're misinterpreting. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, at least again, personal experience. I mean, as a black woman in this industry, I have learned much like they tell you in the news here in the US that when you have a black kid, you teach them how to respond to an officer stopping you. You put your hands on the steering wheel. And frankly, I think it's the same in our industry. I think that when I joined the, you know, this industry, the UN, I definitely came in being measured by very Western centric standards of what achievements should be. So you learn to play the game. You learn how to talk to a white supervisor. You learn what, it, what to expect, what is expected from you. But now that we're trying to flip the switch and we're trying to have a conversation that, you know, centers a little bit more around the fact that, you know, as a black person, this is my experience. How can we change the system to work around that? Everything is being thrown back at me being like, well, you're the one that has a problem with the system. So why don't you give me the solution instead of us working collectively together like we have been doing in other cases? And I do think, I think Taz pointed a very good point. That's something for me that I just realized recently is you're kind of to evolve. You make yourself kind of colorless. You kind of erase parts of your identity, which I'm sure very different forms of minorities do. Uh, it's not just a, a black thing, <laughs> but I imagine, I do think you just try to conform and try to fit in. And to do that, you don't speak about, you know, things about your identity that could make other people on, you know, not at ease. And it's, it's great, at least, you know, being in the U.S. right now to see where the discussion goes. And there's just so much on the table. But it's hard because we have great conversations where colleagues are, are seek to learn and to, you know, they're like, educate us, but then it's still on us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not about necessarily enough for me at least about how can I educate myself? Mm -hmm. How can I take that step to get to where I'm supposed to get? Mm -hmm. It's still always about us giving more. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's a balance that needs to be, you know, um, recalibrated. Yeah. And so, I mean, from everything that you've both been saying, it sounds like kind of all of these factors play, you know, significantly and, and throughout your your working days or, you know, your your experience. And so it must be exhausting and, you know, it must take a toll on it must take a toll on your mental health, um, and how you have the sustainability and the resilience to kind of keep, you know, working through this environment and and also, you know, trying to challenge it in the best way that's 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 productive and that that's possible for you guys. But how do you how do you deal with that in your everyday life? Do you have your own networks? Do you have your own friends, your own family that really relate and, and or even allies that you can kind of communicate with? What's the, how, how do you, how do you make sure that you're still centered and able to focus and, and move forward? Taz? Good question. I guess for me, <laughs> where to start? You know, working in the aid industry, as many people, I'm sure a lot of listeners will, uh, will acknowledge it's, you have to be a cowboy, right? You're always being told, you never say no, you go for it. 
you know, you might your first mission will be in Bangui, you have no idea what's going on, but you just throw yourself into it and you don't complain. Whether you're black, you're a woman, you're anyone of color. And so you create this sort of thick skin whereby none of these issues should affect you. And actually the funny thing is I remember the first time that I started talking about or thinking about um, maybe race or like my position in, in an organization was when I ended up on a team where I was really struggling with some of the work that was going on. And I wanted to talk to someone about where my next steps would be, but I wanted to talk to someone with a likeness to me. I wanted to talk to a black leader that I could aspire to who I wanted to be my mentor. And I looked around my team at the time and I was like, oh, my supervisor's white, my supervisor's supervisor's white, my next supervisor. Like there was no one in my eye, like line of sight that I could, I thought comfortably discuss some of these issues because of course there are some issues that are easy to communicate with someone um, who comes from a similar background as you. So when this, this is a while back. So when this Black Lives Matter <laughs> situation started to happen in the US um, this year, my immediate thought was, okay, what I want is allies, not because I want to necessarily only move the needle, but because sometimes you just want to have that conversation and find that comfort in being able to say, you know, oh, you're suffering, me too. This is a really hard discussion. But also, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, friends or colleagues who are white who have come and told me, you know, Taz, like, I don't understand it. I don't understand what's going on. Please tell me when I'm doing X, Y, or Z. And the truth is that the same conversation is happening even within the black community. There is definitely different opinions and different senses. I mean, there are older people who have been part of this, and as, this is why when Sidney was saying, this isn't something new. This is something that's been gone on for years and generations. It's because previous generations have also tried this fight and perhaps had negative uh, repercussions. Mm -hmm. And so they see us being out here fighting the fight, and sometimes you know you get the warning, like you know my aunt would say, Taz, respect your elders. Don't go off and <laughs> talk talk away about all this white black nonsense. You know, keep quiet, do your thing. And right now, I'm like, no, I want to be able to do that. But you always look for like that security and being able to talk to colleagues. And I'm really lucky that I'm currently working a team with like some fierce and amazing black women. And it was, you know, it reminds me of the struggle that I had before. So I think part of it is being able to have those conversations with people from different generations, hopefully, but also being able to, you know, have the space within your workplace to talk about it, both informal and informal channels. And I think that that's probably something that um, a lot of our, at least this industry, a lot of organizations could benefit from, is having the ability to create these networks. And again, not always formal. I think the informal networks are just as valuable. And talking to friends, but being able to listen as well, both white and black, both. Um, should be able to listen to each other and, and have these conversations. At least that's my, that's my sense. So in terms of psychosocial support for myself and mental health, that's been something that's been helpful. But I'm gonna say very clearly, it's not that it's all resolved and I'm super happy now. I think no, it's something that you're growing in, right? And what about you today? I mean, I think picking up on what Taz is saying, I did feel like um, there was um, a generational divide. I do think the conversation, at least for me, has been a lot easier with people in their 30s to 40s. Um, a lot of stronger allyship and understanding of the issue. And so that that's one. I have great friends at work and outside of work, which, which always helps. 
uh, you know, sometimes you, you know, you're being gaslighted, so you don't know, am I crazy? So it's good to just check. <laughs> you check in. Is it me? <laughs> Can you just give me an honest opinion? I went too far? Okay, maybe I went too far. Um, and yeah, I think what Taz mentioned about allyship, it is true that, you know, allyship comes in many forms. And I think it's important to keep that. I do admit that I have benefited from having close allies who are in the sector in the same line of work and who are um, black women. I have other allies who are of very different backgrounds, mentors from before, people who are also more senior um, and that I, that I respect. I've been also very disappointed. For me, I think that's the hardest part. I think I, I'm just very disappointed in the way we still struggle with this issue in some of the um, feedback in some of the behaviors I have seen. I do think red lines have been crossed for me. And I think it's this is where it gets tricky from a mental health perspective to kind of see where you draw the line. Mm -hmm. Do I need to stop engaging in this conversation for my mental sanity? In an effort of like self-preservation. Yes, to, you know, be happy. <laughs> but at the same time, would am I capable of this? I mean, I come from an activist family, so it's kind of in my DNA. I don't know if I know how to back up you know, back up, back off, sorry, uh, from, uh, from this uh, without, in the end, you know, feeling even more down. Mm -hmm. So I think this is something I'm really struggling with. I know that I'll probably continue this fight, but at what cost? At what cost? And that could be uh, my commitment to stay in this, uh, in this sector. Mm -hmm. That I'm not sure. And that's a big unknown. And so following on that, you know, does, does that indicate that there's a gap within this sector and how we look at the structures that exist for counseling and for, you know, psychosocial care? Is that something that's really kind of Western centric and not something that you could tap into for this particular issue? Are the, are the structures we have in place like counselors, are they adequately equipped within these organizations to talk about race and to, and to really challenge, you know, structures within these agencies? Or do you need to take it entirely separately and, you know, look for your own kind of help and, and solutions? Where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> You're assuming that people equate a discussion on anti-racism and mental health as linked. Mm -hmm. We're not even there. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're even at the stage where many realize how draining and exhausting it is. Mm -hmm. And... This is what I was saying earlier about staff retention. I don't think people realize how many are on the, on the tip, on the brink of being like, F this, I'm out. So I do think we need a greater recognition in terms of um, psychosocial support, counseling. I think it's, we've definitely evolved and we are way better than we were before. But we don't have the capacity like in our aid sector to even look at a, a lot of the issues. It's still a very reactive system. Mm -hmm. Uh, I haven't seen any proactive message around this, uh, not at all. And I don't even I wonder if I wonder if the, the the term black fatigue is something that's even <laughs> being discussed anywhere. So I'm not I'm, I'm not really sure. For me, it's definitely something that comes from outside or from the informal networks that Taz was uh, was mentioning. Mm -hmm. A colleague was wondering if we could have a black mental health day just to like <laughs> recuperate. <laughs> and I'm sure every different group could have one as well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, we're not even, at least for me, if there was an acknowledgement that this is a difficult conversation that is taking a toll on a lot of staff, 
mm-hmm. and a lot of their mental health and because a lot of their energy is being put into conversations that are very personal, very difficult, mm-hmm. and that take a toll. That would already be such a great first step to say, we see you, we know it's difficult, mm-hmm. we hear you, and we'll try to find a way to make this less difficult, mm-hmm. less hard on you. And so where does that acknowledgement really have to come from? Does it have to come from your own individual agencies or organizations or, you know, at a global level, does it need to come from from governments? Does it need to come from headquarter institutions? I mean, where does that acknowledgement need to come to really spark wow. a change? Yeah, and that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, not a tough one, as in the, the answer is easy, everyone. But <laughs> the truth is that, is it actually going to come from everyone? I doubt it, especially when you're talking about governments. Governments talking about racism. I mean, we know the situations we're dealing with. Of right course, now. and there's definitely a gap, right? There's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a gap in what people are recognizing, right? And so, even within the United Nations, you know, what what is the message that comes from the top? It's definitely not something that. I think it's it's funny because um, I think Sade touched upon it when she when she made her first intro, when the Black Lives Matter situation happened, we. We were all appalled and really, I think a lot of us were scared about what was happening, both for our safety personally in New York, but generally about what this meant for now, what it's been like months and years to come. And we looked to our leadership to be the first ones to speak out. And it took a long time to hear a united message from the leadership in the UN, from the principals. I think they all felt it was probably quite a sensitive topic didn't want to didn't want to make it political, but it is. Everything is. And I think that it's interesting. Like the UN is what it is because we were the pioneers in upholding human rights, in pushing the agenda of governments, pushing the agenda for the world. And it seems so strange to me, almost painful to see on such a topic which covers all of these issues, for us to be not quite silent, but to be so reserved or conservative in how we want to approach it. And I get a lot of a lot of discussions where, I mean, I think she was saying generational, generational divide. I don't know if it was quite a divide for me, but definitely like I could sense a reluctance for a lot of like older people of color that I've discussed with, with to engage in a very vocal and strong way on these issues. So where does it have to come from? It should come from everywhere. But I think that we're trying to spark that fire underneath it but it's hard, i know it's hard to it's hard to remain consistent but i i think i look at this more as an ultra marathon with a lot of hurdles that you kind of just have to keep going i mean that's how that's how we got where we are right that's how women's rights got through it that's how child's rights got through this like we just have to keep pushing and it's hard because yeah if if retention is an issue as you said today i mean it's concerning because then who's left so we do need to just keep pushing. And it's, it's unfair, but we also did put ourselves in a position where we want to work with these organizations for the better and to improve and to have that change. So I do think that, you know, I have the discussions. It is exhausting. It does put me in a situation sometimes where I feel incredibly vulnerable. It has made me question a lot of my uh, actions and the way that I try and take care of myself or help others to kind of process this, this issue. But I think you just, I mean, at least from my, in my opinion, you just keep pushing that narrative and hopefully that will lead to some kind of change. And sometimes it, you just need the right champion, right, to to work through these issues with. But I, 
I sincerely hope, I think like today said, that we are on the brink of moving the needle forward rather than just keeping to the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, no one is going to say that it's a bad discussion or a bad movement. If it could just be quieter, less ambitious, you know, let, let's take it slow. Let's do baby steps. Let's not rock the boat too much. Well, no, we're here. We're here to say we're here to rock that boat. We're not going anywhere. And if it's not me, if it's not Taz, it will be others. And I think this is just the main message. And it is for everyone to push that message. But frankly, it's for our leadership. If I look to the leadership of humanitarian organization, aid organizations, to set the message. Uh, sometimes, yeah, it is about the vision. It is about the commitments. And it is, a, it is about saying, well, you know what? This is a priority. And this is what we need to change. And this is the vision that I have as a leader and that I want you all to, to carry forward. So I do think that this is necessary so that we have the right level of ambition. You know, we are in this, in this sector for a reason. And I think it's important that we commit to human rights-based <laughs> mandates that we have or <laughs> depending on, you know, our development ones or I'm just not sure there's a space for us to shy away from this discussion. I like the idea for author marathon. Uh, I've never run a marathon, so <laughs> exercise. <laughs> this is <laughs> this. I do them all the time. <laughs> this is probably where I'm like, okay, where's the exit? Can I stop now? Wait, we still have to continue. But a very good friend of mine and a mentor um, said a few months back, you know, we can't really afford to have some of you stop because there are not that many black women moving up the ladder, and. This is the time to, to look at that. But you're touching on a few things, right? In a, in a nutshell, you're saying you need political motivation. You need to have leadership that see the issues. And you need to have your own personal networks to, to build each other up and strengthen each other and, and, and keep going and make sure that you're, you know, in the right mental space to be able to, to continue the, the push, right? Right. I mean, in a different circumstances, I would have said you mansplained me, but no, you've summarized it really well. <laughs> <laughs> This was perfect. <laughs> I know how to mansplain. <laughs> Do you want to take some notes for me? <laughs> Where's my notepad? <laughs> Too soon, Ian. Too, Too soon. soon. I know. I take that joke then. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, great. And so I guess, I mean, there's so many things that we have not touched upon because obviously this is such a vast <laughs> opening to so many issues that we, we do have within our, within, our, within our sector. And so, Taz, I mean, where, where do you think we'll be in five years? Do you think that we will have kind of been able to advance step by step? I mean, I don't want to be cynical. I think five years is quite short. The UN is, what, 75 uh, this weekend, <laughs> so I think I think five years might be a bit of a short, it's less of an ultra marathon and more of a sprint. But I definitely think that we're going to see some changes. I think having the right mix of diversity in leadership positions will help to move forward that agenda. I guess what I would hope for is that I think you mentioned this very early in the in this um, conversation, Ian, is that we're not only looking at this as an HQ conversation and that the field colleagues that we have also feel like they can be engaged in this because I think that the vulnerabilities there are unfortunately much harsher and I'm sure if I was sitting in a field office somewhere in 
northeast of Nigeria and I was listening to this podcast, I'd be like, great, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation, but I'm here as the only woman of my position and my all my directors or chiefs are white or men and it's it's just not easy. So finding a way to have that, to normalize that instruction, that, that conversation. And I agree with today. I mean, it definitely comes, I mean, leading by example is like my favorite phrase. And I think a lot of my leadership probably hate me for it at the moment because that's all I keep repeating. And, you know, that's how we are as humans, though. Who do we learn from? We learn from our parents or the adults in our lives. And so if they don't think that this is a conversation worth having or they don't follow or adhere to some of these, the standards that we should be upholding as UN people where we are, impartial we are non-discriminatory and we actually do try and foster the best in no matter where you're from i think it's hard to see it at the at any level so i don't know i'm a very grassroots person i like to think that change comes from the people that are involved in it and i think that there is that uh, interest i just think that we need to be able to normalize the conversation a lot more so I like in my organization I work as a, like as a staff representative and I and I love having the opportunity to be able to talk to people about these issues. And it's interesting what you mentioned earlier about, you know, like do we have a system in place, like do we have counseling in place to do this? Frankly, I don't think outside our sector, I'm not sure that any counselors are ready to talk about this. You know, from on a personal note, I mean I remember once thinking, oh, you know, if people tell you like you should talk to a life coach or you should talk to a therapist. And I remember thinking even in the U.S., we have the option of all the choices. All I wanted was, I kind of want someone who's going to understand where I'm coming from. And so you kind of gravitate towards being like, I want to find the black therapist who's going to be able to understand my issues and be able to understand what it means to be a woman in this case, in this kind of industry. But then you're like, I also want to find a black therapist who understands humanitarian work and the challenges that that brings. And we're just, you know, even in the U.S., which is like one of the most populous, <laughs> in, you know, organ um, countries in the world who also are keen to having these type of conversations and even trying to seek out that help. We don't have it everywhere. And I don't think we should. I, I don't want to also deny the fact that we come from a cultural background. I mean, I come from, um, I, you know, I come from Africa in the end. I come from Malawi. And these are just not conversations you have, especially things that are considered to be soft topics. It's not easy. And I think I still go back and like, you know, go back to this point that you have a generational divide where having these conversations led to you being fired or put aside or didn't help you with your career development. So it's not an easy, an easy world or issue to navigate. But I definitely think if you normalize it and you have leadership that moves into it, then I think that that can actually help the conversation and moving that needle. But you need to have that grassroots engagement for sure. I think just one point, there is a tendency to, to ask us to, to look to our black leaders. And I think this is a responsibility of all leadership. Mm. And it's a collective responsibility of the sector. And it shouldn't be just for black people or people of color to mm -hmm. take forward. It's yep. for all of us to do better. And it's for all of our leaders to do better. Hey, Tez, today, thank you so much. That was really great. Mm. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Are we allowed to do this again sometime? No, that's it. You're off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
from reputable sources. We have more episodes out next week, and remember to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please, if you want to chat or throw something our way, email us at lemonadepod at gmail.com. That's lemon, A-I-D-P-O-D, at gmail.com. Bye! Lemonade.